Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate again. Link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, everyone. And welcome to the group chat, Radical Change with Vonda Page. And today I am super excited once again to have with me Jackie Abram, the co- one of the co-authors of an amazing book, Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systematic Racism and Kept Her Job. And it, like I said um, on uh, LinkedIn and in our discussion, this book is a page turner. And not only is it a good book just because it's well written and it's a good story, but it also gives true insight, not only into what situations uh, look like when you are a Black woman at work, but also um, provides a roadmap on how to deal with it. But before we get into it, um, I want to say good morning, Jackie. And, you know, tell me how you doing. How was your week this week? I know it's been a rough one. It it has been a rough one. And thank you for asking. And, um, you know, also thank you again for just inviting me on your show. It's a pleasure to be back a second time to um, talk to your audience and just share a little bit about me and my book. Um, You know, but like I said, this week has been... uh, it's been rough. You know, um, as you probably already heard, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was, uh, you know, given a free pass, basically, you know, acquitted on all charges. And, you know, that was just absolutely sickening to me to hear, um, you know, simply because, you know, they, they basically gave all people who look like Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, a free pass a to pass. go out Mm-hmm. A free pass to go out and, and do harm to to our people or people who support us. And so, you know, that that weighed heavily on my mind. And then, of course, we have uh, Ahmaud Arbery's murderers uh, on trial. And so, you know, it's been a heavy week, um, but that just means we have to keep pressing forward with the work that we're doing because, you know, if we can change just one heart and mind to see um, what life is like for us, you know, living while black, um, you know, I, I feel like we're moving in the right direction if we can do that. And and that's why I feel like my book is so important. Let me just show it here. Mm-hmm. My book, once again, is Hush Money, uh, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. You know, because although I can't you know, have a profound and deep impact on everything that affects us from a uh, systemic racism uh, lens, I can at least show you one aspect of that, you know, living while Black, working while Black, and and show it to you in a real and authentic way that I feel um, you can understand. And if you are Black or a a person of color, um, that uh, it will resonate with you. 
Yeah. One thing that um, I was thinking about, you know, so in, in light of the news this week, um, you know, that experience of when those things happen, we're still black and we still have to go to work. Right. And so, you know, um, fortunately for me, I haven't had to be in an office, you know, and, and really, um, you know, be around uh, mm-hmm. white people, um, you know, at work. Uh, right. and, and during these times, it makes it especially, uh, especially challenging because mm-hmm. I think there is a sense that we are supposed to endure these things, hear the news and just like keep it, keep it moving business as usual. But that, that is not possible. Um, I forgot the name, the type of the name of that specific trauma that when you see, you know, someone that looks like you, you know, uh, you know, uh, get, get, get harmed in some way or, or whatever, how it affects you, you know, almost as if it was you, right. Or, right. or like a brother or a sister, especially when you look at any face of face, especially, you know, when it's, when it's in our community and that could be your cousin, your uncle, your father, your daughter, your son. And so to be in a corporate space and, you know, uh, where where that experience is not valued right. or where um, you're supposed to act business as usual, right? And not, right. not uh, metabolize and absorb and um, experience the emotions that come with trauma because it is trauma. And, and you know, people who were traumatized by the act of, of what happened and then you know, to see what happened yesterday, but, but really we're not surprised. I'm black community is not surprised that anybody would ever get off period. It wouldn't matter. Right. And I I think from Rodney King days forward, there Mm -hmm. is no black person that would ever be surprised about any verdict, regardless of the egregious nature of the way, you know, a murder occurred, who did it or, or, you know, how many people saw it whether the person's back was turned. There was a meme on LinkedIn yesterday where uh, they showed two police officers uh, and uh, they showed, you know, a person walking away, right? right. Of course, getting shot in the back. And then, right. you know, here's old Jacob just chilling, right? right. With, with no accountability. And we have to um, make it normal to talk about it right? from the standpoint of, what we need to talk about. Right. And, and, and as black people, right. It hurts every time, Mm -hmm. even though we're never surprised or shocked by any verdict or whatever happens. It just, to your point goes to, um, amplify, you know, it it goes to, um, just to, to make it more, um, critical. It's, it's more critical that right. we keep having these conversations. So, you know, when we were talking last week, mm-hmm. um, you know, about the book, um, and we were talking about Ebony's um, experience. And one of the things that I found so interesting, and I was talking to friends about this at dinner, mm-hmm. is that it's not always your direct manager or your direct manager or somebody in even in your on your team, right, that, that has the potential to sabotage and influence your career negatively. So for those people who haven't, you know, heard talk, you know, didn't hear our discussion last week, bring us, you know, back, give a little summary of the book, um, you know, and then let's just pick it up from there because I think it's, 
important, right, to think about uh, where um, these conflicts come from within the workplace so that people can understand where to look out from, right? And who, who, to, who to look out for and how to think about themselves. So give us the, you know, give us the, the overview and then we just get, on, get into it and talk okay. about that main character. All right. Sounds good. So, um, you know, you said a lot and um, there's a lot to unpack there. So um, what I want to do first is just kind of talk a little bit about um, the conversation we were having about, you know, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse being acquitted, you know, um, the vigilantism, the, the murders that continue to occur, the, the free pass and the green light. Um, you know, so you talked about how in the workplace, you know, we we as black people, you know, are feeling some kind of way right now. We are sick. We are disturbed. We are horrified. We are mortified. But for those of us who are still in corporate America, when you show up to work, even with all this going on, including uh, the Ahmad Aubrey uh, trial of his murderers, you know, you can't express any of that. You can't talk about any of that. You have to put on that fake mask, you know, with the fake smile and, and go into work and, and pretend like nothing is going on in the world. And so, you know, that's something that you internalize and as a type of trauma, it eats at you, okay? But, but let me just take that situation and put it into the workplace vein for a minute, okay? In in my career, okay, we talked a lot about my career in my experiences last week. And so um, everyone knows that I, as of right now, am not in corporate America. I actually left corporate America, not because I wanted to, but because I felt like I didn't have a choice. I was, I was losing myself in the process. Remember how we talked about last week, you know, the comparison that I drew between how they uh, racist police kill us in our communities, but then racist managers and folks in the workplace kill our careers in the workplace and both end in a different type of death. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the workplace, okay. And you, you think about diversity trainings and again, you know, I, I have nothing against diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. Um, I know that they're well-intentioned, but I ask, I ask those of you who are involved in DEI trainings, who have been through DEI trainings, or who lead DEI trainings to consider something for, for just a minute, okay? I had a lucrative career in higher education, as I mentioned, that spanned nearly de uh, two decades, so nearly 20 years. And in that time frame, my career was repeatedly derailed by racists in the organizations that I worked. I worked in multiple organizations during that time, trying to find a place where I could be accepted as a Black woman who was not only Black, but who was also very smart and very, very good at my job in finance, okay? And what I found over those nearly 20 years is that no such place really existed for me. And 
the, the sad part that I want you to really consider is this. In all those organizations that I worked for, you know, attempting to build my career and find a place where a strong, intelligent, confident Black woman could be successful, every last one of those employers had, you know, an anti-racism discrimination policy. They had DEI trainings every year, okay? And while I am living through the most horrific and most vile forms of racism imaginable, you know, the people that are doing this to me are on the diversity, equity, and inclusion committees. Okay. Talk about it. Talk about it. So how do you think that makes a Black person feel when they are the target and they are the subject and of torment and racism and humiliation and, you know, denigration and every other horrific adjective you can think of while being in a company that on the surface is talking about how diverse we are and how we are all about equity and inclusion. And you who are suffering as your career is being derailed and that rope that you have is being unraveled and that ladder that you're on is being pulled from under you, you can't talk about it because the same people that are leading these diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are the same ones who are either targeting you, derailing your career because you're Black, or they are in support of the, the training. So you, you have to put on that mask with a fake smile. And you have to go into work and pretend like everything is okay, knowing that these DEI trainings, unfortunately, for you and many other Black people in the organization, are not working. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, I think about that exact scenario. And the other thing is, as the Black person, and usually, right, in corporate, you're probably one of only one or one of two. And if you're a black woman, you're probably definitely only one. And maybe there's another person. But even when they do these trainings, right, everybody is looking at you like, well, Jackie, it's your fault. We have to do these trainings because you're the black person and we have to do whatever because of you. And, um, and when, and when you said about the target of, you know, uh, the, the targeting uh, treatment, or the setup, you know, coming right out of those people that are responsible for diversity, equity, inclusion. I have seen it. I have seen it. And it is real. I know many, many people who've experienced it and have a very similar story. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, again, I I always like to preface what I say um, by the fact that I am a supporter of real diversity, equity, and inclusion training, okay? Um, I think the work is important. I, I think there's value there. But I'm also somebody who's going to give you straight talk. You know, you're going to get it straight from me with no sugar added, no chaser. And I'm here to tell you that 
um, if we really want to make real change in our workplaces, we have to look at racism from a real lens because you can't you can't change the heart and the mind of someone in an annual training of a few hours. It's just not going to happen. You can make that training mandatory, but here's what's going to happen. They're going to go through that mandatory training. They're going to check the box, promising to treat everyone fairly, you know, um, to implement strategies that are diverse and that, you know, are equitable and that are inclusive. But then once they meet that that requirement, they're going to go back into their routines and they're going to pick up with business as usual and the racism is going to continue. So if there is anyone listening to me today as someone who has lived, lived this, you know, I'm not just talking um, from textbooks. I'm telling you what I've lived. Do something better. Okay, and and what you can do better is continue your diversity, equity and inclusion trainings, but add a strong component that includes systemic racism in the workplace. You put my book right at the forefront. In this book, you don't get a small snippet of what's happening to us in the workplace. You get to follow one black woman's five-year journey, you know, from the time she's reading the newspaper looking for a job to the time she gets hired at this for-profit college, the racism that she encounters, the racial trauma she suffers, um, the consequences that she uh, lives after trying to fight and speak up, all the mistakes she made. But then you also get to see what happens when she starts fighting back and stops making those mistakes, actually learns from those mistakes and then starts winning, you know, actually turns the table on her employers and the people inside of that company. Um, I, I liken it honestly to um, a modern day story of David against a, a corporate Goliath, because that's really what it is, you know, if you think about Ebony for a minute, Ebony is a young black woman. Uh, she's living in poverty with her sick mother. Um, she's trying to get her son back after, you know, having been in a safe house for abused women. And all Ebony ever wanted was a chance to live the American dream that for her was nothing more than a fantasy with with no hope of becoming a reality. And so, you know, this young woman, because of who she is, the integrity that she has, and she knows the difference between right and wrong, when she enters this organization and she realizes that not only is she the target of racism, but the other Black woman who's working in the department with her is also being targeted because of the type of person Ebony is, she wants to make things right. She wants to improve their circumstances. So Ebony takes this battle on where a lot of people won't. A lot of us are too afraid to take on this type of battle. We would prefer to suffer in silence because we we need our jobs and we don't want to make any waves. And so we suffer in silence, letting it affect our health you know, our, our mental, our, our physical, our emotional health. 
But Ebony, Ebony wanted to make a change. She wanted things to be right. So she decided to take on this battle. And if you look at it from a a spiritual, a, 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 a Christian lens, you know, Ebony was fighting a battle against impossible odds. You know, she's going up with uh, up against a company who has very deep pockets, okay? She's going up against a company that has resources that are far more superior <clears throat> than what Ebony has. But Ebony has her mom. And through her mom, she developed faith. And through that faith, Ebony took on this battle. And even though the resources she had were far, uh, far more inferior than those of her employer, she kicked their ass, okay? She kicked their ass. I'm going to just say it like that. She did. Okay, so what I want to do today is talk a little bit about covert racism, because that is what we are up against in the workplace today. You know, we're not dealing with the racism from decades ago where, you know, everything was out in the open. And like I said, you could point at it easily spotted and say, that is racism. That's not what our people are dealing with today. The racism that I experienced in my career, <laughs> the racism that my daughter's experienced. You know, he he just wants to listen in. He's learning about covert racism. <laughs> but the, the racism that I experienced, the racism that my daughter's experienced, um, the racism that so many of us experience in the workplace today is not that overt type that you can easily spot. It's covert and so um, a lot of people may not really understand what covert racism actually looks and feels like in the live environment. So I want to do a little bit of reading from my book, but I want to just take you back to what we talked about last week. Um, last week, we read an excerpt from Hush Money um, that talked about uh, one of Ebony's uh, very first racist tormentors, a, a man by the name of Malcolm. And Malcolm was absolutely horrific, absolutely horrific. Ebony uh, tried to deal with uh, the racism that he was spewing um, by filing an anonymous complaint. And she found out that that was absolutely the wrong thing to do because not only did things not improve after she made this anonymous discrimination complaint to the corporate company, but things actually got worse uh, because he retaliated against her and the consequences of her uh, making this anonymous complaint were severe. So that's where I kind of want to pick up today and I want to tell you a little bit more about that, that situation. So you know, things were very bad for Ebony, you know, um, as we read last week, um, you know, her, her, her job became a living nightmare from which she could not awake. 
and she suffered an enormous amount of uh, racial trauma, you know, considering both suicide and homicide as she tried to navigate what was happening to her. But here's the interesting thing, and um, this is the part that we didn't get to last week. You know, despite Malcolm's best efforts to derail um, Ebony's career, she was actually successful. She was good at her job and she was unexpectedly promoted, okay, and moved to a different campus, uh, the Temple campus in Temple, Texas, where she could now be free of this racist tormentor, Malcolm, who's still at the Austin campus. And, and this was exciting for Ebony for, for many reasons. You know, um, number one, this was the first time Ebony had ever been put in a management position. She was a director. She was promoted to a director, um, which if you were to look at the organizational hierarchy, was a position higher than her racist tormentor, Malcolm, who was an associate director. And she was also moved away from him. So now she's got a fresh start, right? She's at a new campus. She's got this new director position. She's never been a manager, but now she's got a staff and she's so excited about all of these opportunities. And because she's smart, she knows that with the right training, she will be successful in this career, okay? So this is where you start to see some of the covert racism rearing its ugly head. So what I'd like to do, Wanda, is I'm just going to um, open to page 23. And I want to talk a little bit about um, this new promotion that she got where she was made a director, okay? All right, here we go. So um, let me just see here. So the guy who uh, promoted Ebony, who was responsible for her getting a promotion, uh, was a, a man in a higher position uh, by the name of Kyle. He was a national director. And he recommended Ebony for this promotion. And so with his recommendation and HR support, she was promoted. Okay. So we'll pick it up right there. So Kyle says to Ebony, I know you don't have management experience, young lady, but don't fret none because I'm sending someone to train you. I won't fret none, at least not until I figure out what fret none is. Kyle laughed in amusement at my response, then said he arranged for Malcolm, my racist tormentor at the Austin campus, to provide me with the management training I needed instead of doing it himself. Disturbing, right? The next day, Malcolm arrived at the Temple campus and immediately started talking shit. Come back to Austin, Ebony, he said with a laugh as he adjusted his ponytail. We both know you don't have what it takes to run this office. When Malcolm was my boss, I was forced to bite my tongue so often I started tasting blood. But now I was in a position higher than his and wanted to finally give him a dose of his own medicine. I do have what it takes, I said with a cheerful smile. After all, I'm a director now, and you're just an associate director, right? 
I really should have followed mom's advice about not fighting evil with evil and taking the high road. Because although it felt great to get under Malcolm's skin, there was an unexpected consequence. Okay, Darkie, uh, uh, Ebony, he said, making a Freudian slip as his face turned beet red. I'll give you one day of training. That's it, one day. Then you're on your own. Then over the next six hours, Malcolm rushed me through his so-called training so fast it made my head spin. And at the end of the day when he left, I was glad he took his toxic energy with him. The next day, I proudly updated the title on my email signature line to Director of Student Finance and then requested $500,000 in past due federal funds, one of the primary functions Malcolm trained me to do. It was my understanding that the funds I requested would be deposited into the Temple Bank account within two days. Four days later, the funds I requested had not been received, and leaders at the campus, national, and corporate levels were very concerned. And when Dr. Romano summoned me to her office to meet with her regarding the delay, she was none too pleased, and my job was off to a very rocky start. Ebony, I'm getting pressure from all directions. You said the funds would be here two days ago. Where's the money? I'm working on it, Dr. R, but I honestly don't know what happened. I followed Malcolm's instructions to the letter. Then I suggest you call him and find out how to fix this thing. The disappointment in Dr. Romano's voice cut me like a knife because I knew I had let her down and she was worried she had unwittingly hired another snake in the grass, as Kyle so eloquently put it. As I made my way back to my office, I was shaking my head in disgust. Malcolm intentionally trained me the wrong way on requesting federal funds, a function, mind you, that he had been performing correctly since the day he was hired. And although Dr. Romano urged me to call him, I knew nothing good would come of it. He set me up to fail and was probably sitting in his office laughing himself into hysteria. When I got back to my office, I closed the door, sat down, and took a deep breath as I tried to figure out how to fix the mess I was in. Suddenly, my desk phone rang. It was Kyle, the National Director of Student Finance. You got my knickers bunched up in all kinds of knots, young lady, he sharply said with even more twang than I had previously remembered. Where's the federal funds for your campus? I requested them four days ago, but they never came in. I replied, panicked and on the verge of tears. Can you help me figure out what went wrong? I think Malcolm intentionally trained me the wrong way and I'm fixing to get upset and I don't want to hear no excuses. Kyle continued. I took a chance on you without management experience against my better judgment. But if you can't do this job, I'll find someone who can. Then he hung up on me. So the reason I wanted to read that to you today, because that is a perfect example of what covert racism looks like. You know, um, employers who tolerate racism have gotten smart, okay? And so they know that if they do something 
uh, explicit, like let's say um, pay you a salary that's $20,000 less than someone in the same job title who's white, you know, they know that that's something you could easily prove with payroll records. So, so what modern day racism has morphed into is this hidden way to attack you where you hurt and, and still really accomplish the same goal. So if you look at the scenario that I read with Ebony just now, on the surface, you know, this college could say, you know what, we're not racist because we gave Ebony an opportunity. We paid her a, 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 a good salary and we promoted her to this director position, even though she didn't have management experience. So that shows that we are pro-Black. That shows that we are supporting our, our Black employees. It's not our fault, okay? It's not our fault. She couldn't do the job. She didn't. She wasn't the right fit. We took a chance on her and, and she wasn't the right fit. So we're going to have to fire her or demote her or reduce her salary because, you know, we gave her a chance and it turned out she wasn't qualified. Do you see how that works? So on the surface, if you were to try to battle this, if you're Ebony and you try to prove that you were set up to fail out of the gate, that not only were you not trained properly, but you were intentionally given the wrong information. You were trained the wrong way. How successful are you going to be in proving that? In most cases, you're not going to be. So what happens in these situations, and a lot of us face those type of situations, we end up quitting or because we've been set up to fail out of the gate, you know, we're still trying to stick it out, but we're making a lot of mistakes because we've been trained that way to make those mistakes. And the manager is documenting all the mistakes that you've made. And then at the end of your probation period is using that documentation of the mistakes that you made that they set you up to make to fire you saying that you're not the right fit. Now, um, we've got a good audience here and I can see some people are posting in the chat. Um, I'm just curious, is there anybody here that's listening that has experienced that type of covert racism that I just described? Because I know I have. And I have. Um, and, and I'm and I'm sure, I mean, I can't really imagine a black professional, whether you're in education, corporate tech, any any industry who has not experienced it, even if they didn't recognize it at the time, right? Because I can think about, because one of the things about the book, right? So, you know, how you take us over Ebony's five-year experience with this industry and this, this, you know, organization. And if you think about working in different organizations and, you know, at different points in your career, I, 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 I believe that when people are treated well, paid fairly and, you know, get some satisfaction right out of their job, people would stay. Right. Um, and, and when the opportunity is there and when your workplace meets your other needs, right. So your, your needs for, 
you know, um, intellectual stimulation, you know, your needs for maybe collaboration or whatever those things are. And so when this happens, it's like, you're always in that. You're just trying to do your job. You're just trying to be great. You're just trying to, and not being able to fight all of those systems and people that are coming after you, because number one, you don't know who necessarily. And one of the things that comes out in the book so well to me is how it there's other people in on it like you always have to have co-conspirators to get stuff done so ebony couldn't have got this this didn't just happen because of malcolm telling her the wrong thing it's a whole it's like other pieces to it so to your point around the 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 system of racism and what you can prove versus what you can't prove right versus covert versus overt. I mean, so Malcolm calling Ebony Darkie, I mean, that's overt, right? But even if she had reported well, it, like, oh, he didn't mean mm-hmm. it. And why did you, you know, blah, blah. Like there's always, people always rationalize everything. Right. So, you know, when it comes to those experiences, I think it's really important mm-hmm. to acknowledge them and acknowledge the harm and acknowledge and continue to talk about it because this is why these things are able to continue, right? And go along because the the, the black woman, black professional person, you know, black, brown, Latin person or whoever is trying to be great, trying to do their job, trying to deal with regular life and then have all that added yes. trauma and emotional yes. distress day yes. in and day out. And so- it is just horrific. And I can't really imagine that there's any black person that's been in their job or in their field or in the workplace for more than eight months and hasn't seen it happen. Because you know how it starts off super nice and everybody's loving you and treating you great. Mm -hmm. But then you, you, you show some intelligence, you show some moxie, you show some leadership, you show credibility, you show confidence forget about it. Exactly. And so, um, you know, one other person that comes to mind with me is LaToya. So you remember LaToya. Now, um, if you notice in a lot of organizations where there's not a a large um, percentage of, of Black people, okay, when we see someone else that looks like us, we we flock to them, don't we? Yes, we do. And, <laughs> and they're behind people down the hallway. Yes. Because I see like, black from the back and I'm like. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, in my case, um, in my career, um, I held many different uh, leadership positions. I was a senior leader, you know, I've been a director, but in every organization that I've worked in, I was literally the only black person on the management team. Okay. Um, Everyone else was white. Um, And so as the only black person, you, you, you feel some kind of way. And so if you do end up working someplace where there's more than one of you, you know, you're, you're instantly flocking to that person because you, you, you feel like they can identify with you and, and they can understand you and you just feel a level of comfort, right? 
So um, the reason I bring this up is, you know, LaToya and Ebony became good friends. You know, they were working in this department together uh, back at the Austin campus. And when Malcolm started tormenting them, uh, he targeted them both because they were the only two black people in the department. Then after that, like I said, Ebony was moved to a different campus. She was promoted. And so now she is away from this campus. Now, when she gets promoted at this new campus, though, for a while, she's the only black person on the, the management team. Okay. But then they hire another woman uh, by the name of Christine. And Christine is someone who on the surface looks more white than she does black. Um, but she is biracial. She has a, a black mother and a white father. But Christine is doing something that I just recently, you know, um, my, my knowledge of black history, I'll be honest with you, is not as great as it could be and should be. Um, and the reason that is, is because, you know, they really don't teach black history in school. And so, you know, after decades of trying to build a career um, in corporate America and not really understanding what was happening to me because mm -hmm. I didn't have that strong uh, Black history background, um, I didn't understand a lot of the terminology that I am now learning through meeting people like um, John Graham Jr., for example, and, um, you know, learning um, about the systems that were in place that allowed my career to be repeatedly derailed. And uh, one of the terms that I've recently learned uh, was through a, a Netflix uh, show. I haven't seen it yet, uh, but my daughter was telling me about it, a show I think it's called Passing. And that's mm -hmm. where uh, Black people uh, can pass as white. And so they use that to their advantage so that they are accepted and and. Uh, and, and, and can get further ahead because white people will associate them as being white and not black. So that is a show that I'm planning on watching, but I haven't watched it yet. But it, it reminded me of Christine. You know, mm. Christine was hired. Um, Christine had blue eyes. Uh, like I said, her, her mom was black. Her dad was white. Uh, but she had blue eyes and very light skin. Uh, in fact, the people around her just thought her skin was tan. And she had, you know, all of the features that are synonymous with, with being uh, white. But when she was alone with Ebony and she could, you know, take off that facade, she was Black. And Ebony appreciated having another Black manager on the leadership team, even if nobody else knew it. Okay, Ebony knew it. And it gave her a certain level of comfort because again, um, in her environment, there weren't very many people that looked like her. So she was happy to have Christine in her corner. And Christine was happy that nobody knew that she was actually Black because she said, you know, I see the way they're treating my friend Ebony. They treat her so bad. They treat her horrific. So I'm not going to tell them, you know, that I'm actually Black. I'm going to let them keep assuming I'm white because they're treating me really great, right? But do you remember what happened 
when the tables turned and Christine found herself the target of racism. Do you remember what happened there? Yeah. Okay. Mm. I'm going to try and find it and, um, and I'm going to read a little bit from that. Okay. So um, Ebony is at uh, chemotherapy with her mom. With her mom. Um, yeah. In addition to Ebony, you know, being subjected to just the most vile, the most horrific forms of of racism in the workplace, she was also dealing with a personal uh, tragedy. Um, Her mother, a, a woman that Ebony was just so close to, her her mother was her mother was diagnosed with. Uh, stage four colon cancer and it ended up becoming terminal cancer so as ebony's fighting these battles at work she's also dealing with the fact that her her mother is dying and you know um she's by her mother's side trying to help her her mother fight for her life okay so um she gets a call from christine while she's in uh, chemotherapy with her, with her mother. And that's where we'll pick up this part. Um, So Christine respected my time away from the office and rarely called because she knew I was with mom. So when I received her call, I knew it was important and answered it. Can you talk? She asked. We really need to talk. I could tell by the tone in her voice that something was seriously wrong and it gave me a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm with my mom in chemo. Uh, Give me a few minutes to find a quiet place and I'll call you right back. I replied, trying not to alert mom to the fact that something was wrong. After hanging up, I told mom I was stepping out for a few minutes to make a call. I also notified a member of the clinic staff that I was stepping out and to call me on my cell if they needed to reach me. When I was in the car, I called Christine back. What's going on? I asked. The shit hit the fan today and I'm resigning. Oh no, what happened? Christine explained that after she was hired, things were great for the first four months because Dr. Taylor didn't realize she was black. She assumed I was white always commenting on my pretty blue eyes and tan skin. And I wasn't about to correct her because I saw how they were mean mugging you. No offense. None taken. I get it. But why are you resigning? Christine said everything changed two months ago when Dr. Taylor stopped by her office and noticed the family photo of Christine, her Black husband, and their two Black children sitting on her desk. She said Dr. Taylor didn't say anything but she's been harassing and denigrating her ever since. When you were on vacation, Ebony, she brought a box of king-sized chocolate bars to the campus management meeting and told everyone to help themselves, so everyone did. But when I opened the wrapper and put the chocolate in my mouth, she started snickering and said, I knew you'd like having a big chocolate bar in your mouth. And I knew exactly what she meant, and so did everyone else by the look on their faces. Then Christine said she started demeaning her in front of her staff and sending her hostile emails that undermined her position as the director of enrollments. And when she complained to Travis Clayton, 
the National Director of Human Resources at the Austin campus, nothing was done. And instead, she was retaliated against by Dr. Taylor. She said Dr. Taylor cornered her in her office behind closed doors and threatened her, saying that going to HR wasn't going to work. She also warned that things could go from bad to worse quick. And as I listened to Christine, I could hear the hurt in her voice as an all-too-familiar feeling came over me. Life's too short to put up with this shit. That's why I'm resigning. I'm so sorry, Christine, I said with tears in my eyes. I had no idea. But if it makes you feel any better, Dr. Taylor's been discriminating against me too. I know. Which brings me to the other reason I called. I couldn't leave without telling you that when you return to work tomorrow, they're going to fire you. Oh my God, are you sure? I'm sure. They've been conspiring against you for months. Who? Dr. Taylor, Logan, and Michael. Every Wednesday when you're gone, they meet in your office and go through your things. I got concerned and started watching them last week. I don't have any proof, but my gut tells me they're setting you up for forgery or making it look like you falsified records. But how do you know I'm getting fired tomorrow? Christine then said that Travis Clayton, the National Director of Human Resources and Office, was at the Temple campus as we were speaking, interviewing my employees and meeting with Dr. Taylor, Logan, and Michael behind closed doors. She said the buzz around campus was that I was going to be fired when I returned to work in the morning, and Travis was staying in a hotel overnight, so he'd arrive on campus first thing in the morning and catch me when I arrived. After thanking Christine for giving me heads up, I hung up the phone and sat in my car, staring out the window and trying to figure out what to do to keep from getting fired when I returned to work. Suddenly, I was overcome by intense fear and couldn't catch my breath. My heart was racing a million miles a minute as a crippling sensation moved from my head to deep in my chest. God, please help me. I cried out before swinging the car door open and vomiting on the ground below. Mom was still in chemotherapy, but I was in my car on the verge of some kind of mental or nervous breakdown. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. The first thing I want to talk about is Christine. Now, um, a lot of people have read my book and the opinions that I'm getting about Christine vary. I mean, you're either one on one side of the spectrum or the other. You know, some people are angry with Christine. They said that she was passing. They said that she was not the least bit concerned with what was happening to Ebony. The way she was being targeted, tormented, harassed until racism showed up on her doorstep and she became a target. That's what some people say. But then I've also heard from other people, uh, especially biracial people, who said, you know, they understand the pressure that that Christine was under trying to exist in, in a world where she is both white and black. And they felt compassion for her. So I was curious to know, um, Vonda, when you look at Christine and her actions, what thoughts come to your mind? So, you know, first of all, I think because I've been in corporate 
and been, you know, in predominantly white spaces for uh, about 35, 36 years, I understood her, what she was doing because she still has to take care of her family. And when you, you, there's something about being black at work where regardless of the amount of melanin you have, you know, your time is coming when you're going to definitely be targeted, right? Because even when you think about, you know, allies being targeted for standing Mm -hmm. up and sticking up for black people. So for me, um, and I had almost, and, and for me, her character, I had, I didn't forget about it, but to me, I wasn't mad. I wasn't mad at her and I understood, but she was looking out because she was paying attention the whole time because that's what we do. Right. Because we're always observant. And she knew that because of how horribly Ebony was getting treated, that if she knew that they were going to know, find out she was black at some point because she had her picture of her family there. Now, if she didn't want any, so to me, that's why I don't, I wasn't mad at her because she had her picture of her family there. So at any point they they knew she, they, they could have found out she was black. And, and when it got to that point where it was her turn to be targeted, her turn was going to come eventually. And so, you know, that whole chocolate bar thing, I remember it was, I was horrified, but as soon as, but as soon as the woman brought the chocolate, I was like, oh, there's going to be a thing there because the, because the culture of racism and the systems and all the processes and everything in the organization, it, um, it allows racism to exist. And so it's just a matter of how (laughs) this is going to play itself out, right? And so I wasn't mad at Christine at all. And she did look out for Ebony, right? Because she was paying attention and watching. And she allowed, you know, she she, um, demonstrated to Ebony, you know, look, no matter what, I'm still Black. And I, mm-hmm. and I still get it and I still know how it goes, mm-hmm. but there is right. A big controversy between, um, freedom and security. Right. And John and I are going to talk about that, um, in a couple of episodes, you know, um, next month, but it, that's, that's what we looking at, right? Because whether we're talking about advocating for ourselves right. or people that look like us or people that don't look like us, that is always going to be a concern. It's always going to be a concern. Absolutely. And I can tell you, um, you know, everyone knows that um, my book, Hush Money, is inspired by true events. This is one woman's journey, okay? And I can tell you that the woman who inspired this story, that this story was uh, inspired by, she was very grateful to her friend, Christine. Because Christine saved her job. And, you know, the other thing you should think about in this situation is that, you know, Christine had the luxury of of looking white. And so when things got too bad for her there, she could easily quit that job and go get another one because of how she looked. Okay. Um, 
the chances of her getting another high paying job in her industry um, with the way she looked was great. But for Ebony, it wasn't so. Um, you have to remember, Ebony was a new manager. She had never uh, she had never been a director before. So she was trying to make a name for herself as a director, uh, trying to be successful in this career. Um, but because she was also black and uh, dark skinned, you know, she, it wasn't a job that she could just easily walk away from. And, and, and not only just because of the fact that she probably didn't have enough tenure and experience under her belt to walk into another job that paid her uh, the salary that she was making. But you also have to remember, you know, Ebony's balancing multiple things, including her mother who's dying of, of cancer. And so, you know, being without an income and not having a livelihood at that um, particular uh, moment was was not an option for her. So she she didn't have that choice. But Ebony was absolutely determined that she was not going to lose her job, right? Um, so when Christine gave her the heads up, you know, fortunately. You know, Ebony was smart enough to see the writing on the wall way back here with how she was being treated at this new campus. And so she was able to put some methods into place to prepare her for the fight of a lifetime that she was going to have in order to keep her job. And so um, I don't know how much time, uh, looks like we're out of time, but um, I was going to tell you, you know, Ebony, we can go for a little bit, go a little bit longer. So, you know, I yeah, just don't want yeah. to leave your, your audience hanging on, you know, uh, on a sad note, because I do want to tell you that there's a reason my book is called Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. So, so let me just tell you a little bit about um, what she did. So, um, like I told you, Ebony made a lot of mistakes in the very beginning, but then she learned from those mistakes. So when she started countering racism here, I mean, the most severe and the most horrific that she had experienced up to this point, um, even though it was extremely painful for her, she was actually prepared. And, and the way that she was prepared is that she, she saw the writing on the wall with this new, uh, chancellor that she's got. And Ebony decided to create weapons, uh, weapons uh, that she could use to uh, defend herself and protect her career. And, you know, a lot of times what happens when we find ourselves in situations like this is we become reactive and then, and then we're trying to scramble over here once they've already started attacking us and we start trying to scramble over here to put together evidence. That's the wrong way to do it because a lot of times um, things disappear. Um, your accesses get restricted. You lose things. And so being reactive is never the right way to fight racism in the workplace. Ebony knew that. And so she decided to become proactive. And she said, I'm going to go into this new job, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. And so 
She created those weapons um, that she could use to defend herself. Um, one of the biggest weapons that she used was um, taking on the motto and the mindset. The E in email stands for evidence. Ebony knew that if she was going to protect herself from these people and save her career, she was going to have to weaponize email. And so she weaponized email very successfully. But there are a million other things that she did. And the book vividly lays it out from beginning to end, how she created those weapons, how she used those weapons, and how she was able to pull it all together and write the most incredible, most uh, beautifully written ironclad racial discrimination complaint that she decided she would send not to the HR people who, you know, had continued to blow her off uh, year after years, but to the CEO and the board of directors. And so, I mean, in between all that, there's so many different things that she did. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't read my book, Hush Money, um, it's a great read. It's not expensive, but it will be an eye opener for you. Um, like I was telling you last week, this is a book that I wrote with my daughters after my own career was killed by racist. I actually started selling this book from the trunk of my car um, about five or six months or so ago um, because I was too traumatized to go back into corporate America. And I, I needed to, I needed a way to express and release the pain that I was feeling. And so I was able to take my pain and my daughter's pain and the pain of so many others and draw from that to tell this one woman's story. Um, I will tell you that it is worth the $14.99 investment on Amazon. Um, a book that I sold from the trunk of my car is now number one on Goodreads, Listopia for Best, eye-opening African-American women's fiction. It's number one in best books to improve and increase your social awareness and racism. Uh, it's on Amazon's bestsellers list. And it is an international award-winning book, which just boggles my mind, blows my mind. Um, it is the recipient of the reader's favorite uh, gold uh, medal for social issues novels. And it really will. Oh, thank you, Maureen. Thank you. Yay. I appreciate you. I appreciate you because I'm, I'm fighting racism one book at a time, but I'm doing this also because I cannot go back into corporate America. I can't. And, and so by reading my book, you are supporting me and you are helping me to continue to try to make a better workplace so that eventually I can feel confident enough to go back in. But right now, I cannot. So I ask you for your support. I'm excited to tell you that um, God is good because I found out that uh, Forbes is going to be interviewing me next week on Tuesday. 
because they want to amplify my voice in this story. Yay! And, and so I just want to continue changing, changing minds and opening hearts and eyes. And I and I thank anyone who who invest fourteen dollars and ninety nine cents to help me do that. Um, this is not something I'm doing to try to get rich. I don't know if you know anything about Amazon, but for every book I sell. I get $7, okay? I get $7 from every book. So, you know, I'm not doing this because I'm trying to get rich. I'm doing this to to try to help our people and, and people of color um, see and feel and smell what we, what we are experiencing, but also learn how to fight it, survive the battle, win the war, and do what Ebony did and keep your job. That... I mean, and we can end it on there because, I mean, we can do this. I mean, I first of all, I have to say thank you um, for your time. Thank you for putting your heart and, and for your daughters, too, for putting your heart and your experience and your pain on paper and, 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 and allowing the world to share in your story. And, and thank you for speaking up for me for my friend Maureen, for every other black woman, brown woman, Latin, indigenous, non-white person that is in the workplace being marginalized and oppressed and abused and harassed and derailed and discouraged and demeaned. It's happening all the time. I want to leave people with this. Send complaints of racism directly to your CEO and board of directors yes. like Ebony did. Yes. Express yourself. Use evidence mail. If you really want people to know what is happening, don't go to HR. Send emails to your board of to the board of directors, the CEO, CIO, CFO, COO, the C-suite, the people who are obligated to uh, uh, fulfill the, 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 the terms and, and requirements, right? Of a, especially of a publicly traded company or a you know institution that has any board of directors or oversight. Now, if you work in an individual, you know, privately owned company by one or two people, you're being discriminated against, you probably don't have recourse, right? But if you're in a large organization, I would probably say, what, more than 100 people, right? You probably have a, a good chance of being able to um, affect something. But well, I mean, and even in those I think cases, it's super interesting. Yeah. Well, and even in those cases, Bonda, I mean, read, read my book because you can put a hedge of protection around you and your job. Even if you are in a small company like that, you know, do what Ebony did. Ebony decided, you know, okay, I'm going to fight this company, but I'm, I'm not going to use the EEOC because, you know, from what I've read, you know, their backlog, they have a lot on their plate. Um, so instead of going to the federal government, I'm going to go to the state government and I'm going to file my uh, discrimination complaint with the state. What that does is it stops your employer in their tracks, okay? It stops the employer in their tracks because even if you send it to the CEO, 
you know, the CEO can be shady or just looking at everything from a bird's eye view too. But by getting the state involved, you know, now you've got the government who is considering looking into this. And as a company who wants to protect their character and their reputation, and in a lot of cases may have things to hide, they don't want the government coming in there. So there are steps that you can take to protect yourself. But I strongly encourage you to read the book because Ebony lays it out vividly, including showing you how to write a perfectly ironclad discrimination complaint that will get the attention that it deserves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, thank you again, Jackie. I'm super excited to hear about all the success and I'm so happy to hear about the four. I know that is, that's going, that's going to put you on the map. That's going to put you on the map. And I'm so excited. We, and I, like I said, I told people your book is a roadmap on, on how to do this and it's what we need. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we, um, I got you living corporate is going to, you know, continue to, to support you. And this is one of those things. Like this is why we're here, right? This Mm -hmm. is what this platform is about. So living corporate is all about, you know, amplifying the experiences, right, of black and brown professionals in the workplace, sharing our stories. But not only that, right, um, healing and coming together and, and, and defining solutions that are for us and by us. So I just have to say thank you. Thank you again. And look, for anybody out here, if you have not gotten the book, whether you are are a black or brown person in in the workplace experiencing um, racism, whether you are a non-black person working in any setting. The other thing that Jackie had talked about in the beginning was how valuable the book would be in a DEI um, realm in the workplace. So not just a book for you to read, um, you know, uh, individually and then take steps, but I see it also as, a, a way to, um, you know, bring a whole level of competence um, around uh, racism and how it shows up in corporate America, what that looks like. And so go out and get the book, y'all. You can get it on Amazon. You yes. can, um, you know, get it at, at local bookstores. It's out there. And, and if you want an autographed book, Bonda, you can also DM me on LinkedIn. Um, okay, now. Yeah, DM me because a lot of people, including John Graham and uh, so many others, order autographed books directly from me. Um, and I'll ship those books to you with a nice message from me. And, um, you know, you'll just be supporting me uh, that way. Autographed books um, are nice because I get to keep the full $20 royalty uh, instead of the $7 royalty that I get from uh, Amazon. So, so that's a great that's way what to we support me too. All right. All right. Then that's and, what we're uh, going to do. Buy it for Christmas, you know, give it to your, your bosses, give it to your coworkers, buy it for your friends and family. Um, that's wonderful. Thank you, Maureen. All right. So everybody, thanks so much. And we will see you next time on the group chat, Radical Change. All right, bye-bye.